Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fishery science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you're of the generous sort, you can be like Ben, Janet, Robin, Garrett, John, and Jerry, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you're able to support the show with either a recurring or a one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and even face masks on our Teespring store if you feel so inclined. Make sure to check it out. Our guest today is Dr. Thierry Chopin. Born in France, Dr. Chopin completed his doctorate at the University of Western Brittany before moving to Canada and becoming a professor of marine biology at the University of New Brunswick's St. John campus. His research, like many of the fisheries scientists we've interviewed, focuses on ecophysiology and biochemistry. However, unlike many of our other guests, Dr. Chopin does not study fish, but seaweed. Much of his research is centered around seaweed cultivation, the commercial value of various algae, multi-trophic aquaculture systems, and environmental sustainability, and the quote-unquote turquoise economy, a greener alternative to the blue economy. For nearly a decade, Dr. Chopin was the scientific director of the Canadian Integrated Multitrophic Aquaculture Network and is the president and founder of Chopin Coastal Health Solutions Incorporated. Finally, Dr. Chopin has been president of the Phycological Society of America, as well as the International Seaweed Association, among many of his other various accolades. And we're fortunate to have him join us as a guest today. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Chopin. I appreciate that you could take the time to join me and chat a bit about your work in phycology and in seaweed aquaculture. Hello, thank you very much for this very nice introduction. (laughs) No worries. So the first question that I have for you is raised both out of context for this episode and out of personal interest. Mm -hmm. I know that there are various uses of seaweed and algal byproducts in our daily lives, from cosmetics to cuisine and even in biochemistry lab equipment. But can you give us an overview of some of the algae and seaweed we may encounter every day and not even realize? Yes. So let's start in the the morning. Uh, I don't know if you had some uh, orange juice this morning. Uh, but uh, especially orange juice with uh, pulp and all these things to keep the pulp in suspension. As a matter of fact, it's a trick uh, with uh, some seaweed extract, which are called carrageenan. And within the orange juice, they make a kind of a microscopic mesh. You don't see it, but a, mic- a microscopic mesh. And it means that the pulp doesn't trickle down, down, down to the bottom. And then you would say, oh, that's an old product that has been on the shelf for, for too long. Or it's the same thing with uh, chocolate uh, drinks and everything when you don't want the particle of chocolate to settle at the bottom. So you do this um, microscopic uh, mesh, the things stay in suspension and you say it's a wonderful juice. So in the morning, you got your dose of seaweed. <laughs> and uh, in the evening, if you are still listening to what your mother told you, is to brush your teeth every night, uh, the toothpaste. Uh, the toothpaste, if there was no, it's mostly, it's another component, uh, compound from algae, mostly from brown. It's called alginates from uh, brown seaweed like kelps. And that's what makes the texture of the toothpaste. If there was no seaweed extract, you will press the tube and it's just a watery product that will come out. So the the texture, the paste is due to uh, seaweed extract. So you see from morning to uh, evening, seaweeds all day long. (laughs) Seaweed is everywhere. That's very cool. So a 2021 paper that you're first author on, titled The Importance of Seaweeds and Extractive Species in Global Aquaculture Production, states that approximately 3% of global seaweed harvest comes from the wild fishery, and the remaining 97% comes from aquaculture. Could you tell us a bit about predominant species of commercial value and geographical hotspots where seaweed aquaculture and harvest are the most prominent? Yes, so the seaweed in the in Western world, the seaweed story is, is not very well known because it's mostly an Asian story. So uh, the countries that are cultivating, um, as we say, uh, the business of seaweed, 97% almost is, is seaweed. Most of it, I think 98% of this 97% is happening in Asia. So it's mostly China, uh, uh, South Korea, Japan, uh, Indonesia, the Philippines, uh, Malaysia. So you, you just have uh, 
maximum eight and nine countries in Asia that are leading the seaweed production. So that's why we don't know much about it in the Western world. So, for example, in China, South Korea, uh, on Japan, it's a lot of brown seaweed, a lot of kelps, but also uh, some red seaweeds like um, nori, you know, the nori that is used, the wrap-up around the sushi. And then, uh, like, for example, in um, Indonesia and the Philippines, it's mostly a red uh, capophycus uh, or cuma, and that is used for carrageenan extraction. And that will be the sugar used uh, in uh, the fruit juice, uh, the orange juice. You have also other red seaweeds that produce agar. And mm. that will be used uh, in bacteriology, uh, in hospital, you know, the medium in the Petri dish where you can spread your bacteria, things, and do the culture. That's also a seaweed extract. That's very interesting. Thank you. So I'm also interested in the overlap between aquaculture and the turquoise economy. So first, could you tell us a bit about how the turquoise economy is greener than the blue economy and how systems like integrated multitrophic aquaculture can facilitate this? Yes, uh, so a lot of people talk about blue economy, uh, uh, blue revolution, um, uh, and uh, for me it came from... You know, very often the color of seawater is not blue. <laughs> the, the blue lagoon, maybe in a few tropical regions, but um, and if the water of the sea is blue, it's generally because it's poor in nutrients. The, the more transparent, the more blue the water is, is the less things there are in the water. And if we want to grow things in the water, um, we need some soup if you want not too much that's a problem we don't want too much but we need some nutrients uh, so as a matter of fact most of the time the water is not so blue but going to the greenish turkish tree greenish grayish uh, and if you mix blue and green uh, you get this uh, turquoise color uh, so that's why we call it the turquoise revolution and we also created a company called turquoise revolution uh, for a seaweed dryer uh, and for me that's the thing is um, we um, there is a lot of talk about the blue economy and in aquaculture, a lot is based on just considering fish. And if you have fish or if you have three species of fish together, it all go in the same direction of uh, nutrient release. Um, and instead of calling these nutrient release waste, the idea in circular economy is... Um, you know, it's well known what is waste for somebody is gold for somebody else. So these so-called waste, these nutrient rollies, both inorganic uh, nutrient, nitrogen, phosphorus, carbon, but also uh, organic particles, um, we can recover them uh, and we can grow more than just fish. Uh, with seaweeds, we uh, recover the inorganic um, nutrients like inorganic nitrogen, phosphorus, carbon. And with uh, shellfish, we recover small organic particles. Uh, and at the beginning, we thought, you know, uh, we will be fine just considering mussel, oysters. Uh, but we realized mussel and oysters, the shellfish are good, uh, but with small particles. Uh, they will absorb them when they are below 100 microns. But if they are too big, they will reject them. And that's what we call the feces or pseudo-feces rejected by the shellfish. So, the shellfish are good for the small organic particles, but if we want to go after the bigger particles that settle more to the bottom, that's where we need other invertebrates. We need uh, sea cucumber, uh, sea urchins, mm -hmm. that kind of organism. So IMTA, Integrated Multitrophic Aquaculture, that's when we mixed all these things. So uh, multitrophic because we have organism at different trophic level. Some release nutrients, the fish, the shellfish absorbs the small particles, the other invertebrates uh, absorb bigger particles, and then the seaweed absorbs the inorganic. So that's why the multitrophic aquaculture. And integrated is because we want to have these different cultures quite close to one another, but doesn't mean that it has to be on the same site. Uh, 
I would say uh, 20 years ago, we started with, because we had to operate with um, within the Canadian regulation. So we were putting our shellfish on our seaweeds within uh, the limit of a salmon site. But as a matter of fact, nature doesn't work like that. You know, <laughs> nutrient doesn't say, oh, there is a buoy. I cannot go beyond that buoy. <laughs> so uh, we have to think uh, at the level of a bay, of a region. Uh, so that's where, why I want to move from site management to bay management, aero management, because the nutrient travel much more than just the four buoys of a salmon site. So integrated, but we have to be careful. Integrated doesn't mean within a salmon site. It means within a bay, within a region where the nutrients are moving. Do you think there's an application of ecosystem-based fisheries management in kind of collaboration with a sort of integrated multi-trophic aquaculture setup, whereas you say bay management instead of just one sea cage sort of thing? Or is that kind of two worlds colliding? Well, <clears throat> unfortunately, humans see it as world colliding. Nature and uh, marine organisms are smarter than us. <laughs> they, they have understood, like, for example, you know, the relationship between fish, fishermen, uh, lobster in particular, uh, also lobster fishermen and uh, aquaculture. The lobster people saying, well, aquaculture is going on our sites and all these things. Um, but as a matter of fact, in the invertebrates, you know, I talk about uh, the sea cucumbers and the sea urchin. I would like to put also the, the lobster in the picture uh, if people could talk to each other. But um, juvenile lobster uh, <laughs> have understood what's going on much more than us. So, yes, uh, under the cages, you know, you have more um, uh, soils, uh, bottom of the ocean that are more uh, muddy, and uh, that's very good for juvenile lobsters. And then when they get uh, older, they move to more rocky uh, substratum. But at the beginning, the juvenile, you find them, the, the habitat is better for them, and the food is there. So they, they, they move towards uh, aquaculture site, and then after that, they are more at the adult stage where fishermen uh, fish them. Uh, they are more uh, on rocky shore, rocky bottom. But if we could come with the idea that, as a matter of fact, the bottom, the, the below the, the site, the aquaculture site, could be nursery for uh, other species. Um, and uh, if we could talk to each other, that, that, that would make a lot of sense. <laughs> Continuing on with the topic of the turquoise economy, could you tell us about your work with the turquoise revolution and Chopin Coastal Health Solutions and how it fits into this environmentalism agenda? Yes, so um, Chopin Coastal Health Solution, uh, I created that company uh, uh, that if you want to do some, allowed me to do some consulting and uh, in Canada and in other countries and with uh, uh, other big institutions like uh, FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, that kind of um, big institution. So it's more a consulting company. Um, we created last year a startup, uh, which we call the Turquoise Revolution. So yes, I, I created a startup with my white beard. I, I <laughs> <laughs> that was interesting. I was in the middle of people that were 23, 25 years old. And, and so uh, I created my startup. Um, so basically what it was, it's um, uh, one of the bottlenecks in seaweed harvesting uh, or processing. It's uh, the early processing. Um, uh, seaweeds uh, don't stay fresh, you know, uh, very long after... Uh, Let's say four days, uh, seaweed will decay and you cannot preserve them well. So you can work with local uh, restaurants, but <clears throat> how many local restaurants can you have and everything? So that's not so much biomass you, you can sell. Uh, and after three, four, five days max, uh, yeah, you have to preserve your seaweed on one easy, not easy way, one possible way is uh, drying seaweeds. Uh, and then you dry them, you store them dry, and then you use them as are still dry, like uh, seaweed flakes and that kind of things. Or you can rehydrate them and put them in soup, you know, uh, kombu soup and um, <clears throat> wakame soup. Um, so, but we, there is a phase of drying. And 
drying is uh, complicated with seaweed because seaweeds are, when you take them out of the water, they are 90% water. So it's 90% water, so a lot of water in the tissue, but also when you get this kelp, that's blade of kelp with a lot of water in between the blades. So it's uh, the water is uh, dripping uh, of this blade, plus inside it's 90%, so 90%, so it's a lot of water to evaporate. And uh, drying seaweed, especially a large volume of seaweed, is not simple. If you cannot go too fast, and then people say, well, just crank up the temperature. But these seaweeds are rich in sugars, which we use again in, uh, <laughs> in the, uh, because these, uh, for the orange juice, you know, these uh, extract, these carrageenan, these alginate, these agar are all sugars. So if you crank up the temperature too much of your seaweeds when you dry them, well, when you uh, burn sugar, you get caramel. So <laughs> you have to be careful that you don't, uh, if you crank up uh, the temperature too much, you start to turn your seaweed blackish because, yes, the sugars are burning. Mm -hmm. And also, if you want to have all these claims that these seaweeds have wonderful vitamins and wonderful stimulants and wonderful, if you uh, crank up the temperature too much, you you denature all these proteins and uh, the the properties are gone. So the problem is don't go too high in temperature and trying to move a large volume of seaweed dripping in water. So so we have been working over the last few years on different systems and didn't work or were very expensive and we were not gaining time. Uh, so now we have a system. Uh, we have been working on it for a little more than one year. Now we have a system. We are very happy, uh, system. We are very happy this year. It's working well. Uh, so that was uh, the two points revolution is to develop this prototype, and uh, I think we have it. And then, uh, of course, uh, if there is a market to develop it and sell it and other things. So we, we have a prototype working at the present time. The next step also, which was always um, planned, is to go uh, solar. Because the idea will be to take the dryer, um, a mobile dryer. The, the dryer is on a trailer, so we can move it and move it to where people have their seaweed operation. And the idea was if we move it to civil operation, we should be free from any, uh, if possible, any electrical grid. We should be independent. So how to, because at the present time, it's working with um, electricity and, or it could be on a generator, but it's always the same thing. It's uh, uh, so, but we would like to move to uh, solar energy. So that's the, that's the next phase. And then it go very well within decarbonization and uh, getting greener, getting the blue economy greener and all these things. So that worked very well in that direction. That's very exciting. Congratulations. That's very fascinating as well. Solar powered CV dryers. That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> Something else that I find really interesting about your work and your lab is that you prioritize interdisciplinarity in your research. And because of this, you've gotten to experience a sort of crossover with gastronomy, for example, <laughs> and working with culinary professionals, sort of, as you mentioned, on materials like cookbooks with seaweed. Could you tell us a bit about that experience and other ways that you've applied your research to other fields and disciplines? Yes, uh, it's a lot of work, a lot of time, but it's very rewarding. Uh, and even first to stay with science, uh, uh, when we created these uh, Canadian IMTA network, the Canadian uh, Integrated Multitrophic Aquaculture Network. We wanted to be uh, to, to to be interdisciplinary uh, because for me it was much bigger than biology. We needed to have uh, economists with us, and we needed to have also social scientists with us because in aquaculture there are some biological issues, but a lot of them are also economic and social, societal issues. Uh, so we wanted an interdisciplinary network, and that was not easy because um, natural sciences, uh, 
founding agency want to found uh, natural sciences, social sciences, and economists uh, want to for, uh, support uh, social sciences and everything. And, and it was not. So finally, we were able to get this network, the Simtan, and we were allowed to combine with an interdisciplinary team of uh, Uh, biologist, uh, physical oceanographer, chemistry, uh, economist, social scientist. Um, so we it took some time to get the funding in place, but after that, uh, it worked for nine years. It was very rewarding because we learned a lot about uh, each other, each is a way of doing uh, research. Uh, we learned our jargonese. Biologist jargonese is not necessarily the economist jargonese. So we needed to t- be able to talk to each other, understand the way we do science and the research. Um, and um, Uh, we understood quite a lot of things. So uh, at the scientific level, it was very rewarding. I would say also one of the biggest um, achievements for me of Simtan, that was we were able to train 143 students, undergraduate students, but also a master, PhD, postdoc, uh, technician. For me, that's very rewarding because we train 143 um, students, but also... All of them have been able to find jobs. And the feedback we get is, well, your students are interdisciplinary. They take the, uh, there is an issue, they take it from different angles, and the solutions are at the interface of all these disciplines. So for me, that's been fun and rewarding. So that's for the science. Now, there is some funny things to do is... Uh, Uh, yes, uh, cooking with seaweeds, uh, to, especially to convince people in the Western world that seaweeds are good. They are not uh, yucky stuff. <laughs> so we can do that. But beer, we, uh, soon we are doing another batch of, uh, we call it the fondi, the fondi kelp gauze. So fondi is a bear fondi, where we are, kelp, the, the brown seaweed, and gauze is a type of uh, German uh, beer. Uh, so, and for me, it's also uh, a local story. We have a local uh, brewmaster. The kelps are coming from the Berfondi, so it's a local story. We are also working at the present time on developing a recipe for um, kelp on blueberry jam. Uh, so people are saying, what? But Uh, New Brunswick is well known to produce a lot of blueberry. Uh, and we're saying, hey, we are producing kelp. Uh, can we combine it? And, and uh, the lettuce uh, recipes is very good. <laughs> so so we do that. You, you will be also surprised because for me, it's all about disseminating our message and also reaching audiences, public, we, we, we generally don't uh, reach. I mean, as scientists, we can stay among scientists, you know, the so-called ivory tower and everything, but I want to convince other people that IMTA and seaweeds are important. So we are friends, my, my, my family and our daughter were dancing with them at the time. Uh, we have uh, friends that have a dance theater company. And uh, with them, we develop uh, a 15-minute uh, dance, which is called IMTA. <laughs> and, and it's beautiful. It's uh, it's on stage. It's two salmon, two mussels, and two seaweeds <laughs> dancing and Thing and uh, so there is some music and there is also a uh, superscript uh, above and with messages that we are important. So uh, the the company these friends have a company uh, just outside of Toronto. So I went. Uh, I remember the, the premiere of the of the show and at the intermission. It was and then at the end it was. Very interesting to see the reaction of people. That's that was a complete. That's not my normal audience. I would say <laughs> it was not a scientific audience. It was more the you know general public and artists and all these things. And their reaction were amazing. Uh, and then you say, oh, okay, so that's the way they understand that. So if I want to do that, uh, how do I? Because for me, it's all about. Uh, conveying our message, just like we do today in this podcast is, okay, how can we make people more aware of what we are doing? It's exciting to be a platform for that message. 
Thank you. <laughs> and I will certainly have to make a trip to New Brunswick for some fundy kelp gulch. That sounds phenomenal. <laughs> So along the same vein of interdisciplinarity, we kind of touched on it in the last question, but there seems to be a lot of applications of your work to social science. What with your research on risk reduction, job creation and security, economic stability and product diversification. Along with your work on promoting sustainable aquaculture for public acceptance and to the general public, sort of like we mentioned, can you speak a bit to how an initiative like integrated multitrophic aquaculture can become a community development project in a sense and the sort of human dimensions involved in the success of a project like that? Yeah, no, I, I, you know, in, in the Western world, uh, there's quite a lot, I would say, of opposition to aquaculture, but then we realize it's opposition to salmon aquaculture. Mm. Uh, In Canada, in uh, Europe, South America, uh, sorry, there is some opposition on it's changing. People are starting to understand that, as a matter of fact, aquaculture, you know, in terms of decarbonization, uh, uh, seafood it is less carbon intensive to produce than agriculture on land. So people are starting to understand uh, the benefit of aquaculture. But still, there is some people opposed to it. And so for me, that was, okay, if we have different practices, if we have different methods of aquaculture, will you change, will it change your mind? So we, we work, uh, we, we had done a, a little video on what is IMTA, show it on people, and we work with Ipsos Read, and um, that was changing the opinion people had on aquaculture. Say, oh yes, if, uh, maybe we change our mind. We, we even did a uh, a show um, with uh, David Suzuki. So uh, uh, for us in Canada, we know David Suzuki, uh, a very well-known environmentalist. And we think that for your audience in the US, maybe less, but definitely uh, in Canada, a very well-known person on TV person. The, at the time, he had uh, what was called the Suzuki Dialogue. So he was coming with uh, his uh, daughter, Sarika, and they were going different places. And uh, okay, uh, what um, I saw that today, you... Uh, so that today, uh, what do you think? So at the end of the day, they were, you know, um, for us, they were on a, in a cove, a sunset and everything. And what did you learn today? And so we spent like three days and a half with them. And at the end, uh, they, they say, well, yeah, if aquaculture evolved towards uh, IMTA, uh, I could be supporting that kind of aquaculture. So uh, that was quite a, quite a move. So I, I, I think... There is that societal aspect of uh, IMTA as a practice that hopefully will change the mind of people. Now, in terms of jobs, what is happening is how do we uh, make these different occupation, these different jobs works? Because like, for example, seaweeds and also shellfish are very seasonal. In most of the year, you don't feed your shellfish, you don't feed your seaweeds every day. So, but we have to be careful. People say, oh, it's easy um, <laughs> to grow seaweed. You, you don't need water, you don't need fertilizer. Uh, <laughs> that's what we read on the social media. And I say, no, you don't need fresh water, for sure, but you need seawater and seawater of good quality. Seawater of good quality, we go again. If the water is too blue, there is not too much to eat, but all these, we call them these invertebrate and seaweed, we call them the extractive part of aquaculture compared to fish, uh, the fed aquaculture. So we distinguish the fed aquaculture and the extractive aquaculture. So you need to have something in the water so that this invertebrate and seaweed can extract, but they will do it. So you don't spend your day feeding them. Uh, and mostly uh, you have, for example, the starting tomorrow, that's why we have this, inter- this uh, discussion, this conversation today, because tomorrow we start uh, the cultivation for the next year. So very intensive, few days, uh, long days to put things in culture. Uh, then it would be some regular monitoring. Then we have to put them in the water in November. So uh, again, a very uh, lot of activities and then from November to late April, beginning of May now because of 
global warming <laughs> things start earlier, they will just grow, eat what they find in the sea and all these things. And then uh, end of April to June, uh, harvesting. So so we have, it's very uh, up and down in terms of activities. Uh, and shellfish will also be very active at certain periods of the year. So how do we combine all these activities? Should it be one company that does everything? We try that initially. I don't think that it's working because a company cannot be good at everything. So maybe it's better to have a fish company uh, Mussel company, sea uh, cucumber company, or the seaweed company, and then they talk to each other to coordinate. But also, what does that mean with uh, the labor? And uh, in period of uh, when there is not too much work uh, in certain activity, can we say, oh, but we need the people for big rush uh, on seaweed, big rush on shellfish? So I, I am more thinking in terms of coastal community where jobs can be, uh, you know, uh, up and down, can we provide activity all year long by coordinating these different activities? So in theory, yes, uh, it's not easy because organizing work and jobs and everything is easier said than done and then regulations and all these things. But if we could look at how we can uh, provide, uh, propose jobs at different times of the seasons, uh, that would be very good. Another question that I have about seaweed aquaculture, and we again sort of led into this with our last question, is the comparison and contrast that can be made between aquaculture and agriculture. So here on the East Coast, we're fortunate to have many farming and agricultural communities and livestock farms and such adjacent to fishing communities and very nautical seaside villages. Is it more of a juxtaposition to compare the two or is there any sort of common ground, do you think, that can help with the sort of public acceptance and engagement in terms of aquaculture with demographics like ours who are very familiar with agricultural practices? It's interesting because um, socially, again, uh the attitude of a fisherman, the attitude of an aquaculturist, the uh, attitude of a farmer on land uh, are very different. Uh, but to tell you, because uh, we work on IMTA at sea, but IMTA in freshwater, that's what I call uh, aquaponics. Uh, and it's the same principles, but of course it's not seaweeds because we are working with freshwater, but we can do it with, uh, for example, the, the interesting thing is the early stage of salmons are in freshwater. So we can do freshwater uh, early stage of salmon plus uh, uh, vegetables, ornamental plants, medicinal plants, and everything. So, so that's what is called aquaponics. And I will tell you my best students uh, again, we go back to the joke. My best students are the ones that have a green tongue or the blue tongue. <laughs> and, uh, and it's true. I, I am thinking of two of them in aquaponics. They uh, have been very successful. Uh, one was the daughter of a farmer on land, but had gone to an aquaculture degree and all things. So she had the, uh, on the other one who finished last year was also a good combination of uh, green tomb, blue tomb, uh, thong. That, uh, that make it is, again, combining attitudes. There is uh, going fishing and hoping the fish is here. Uh, and then I would say aquaculture and agriculture is uh, is more about uh, nurturing your crop. So very different attitude. Can we combine them? And again, have some, <laughs> I don't know, hybrid people or whatever. <laughs> but uh, no, gen- generally the ones that are successful uh, are the ones that combine scientifically, but also in the way they are, their mentality, their way of thinking combines uh, mm. that. Yeah. I'm also curious about invasive species. So is this something we have to be concerned about with seaweed? And how does one manage or prevent seaweed or algal invasive species? Yes, um, you have to be careful. Uh, from the beginning, we always say 
we are not interested in introducing any species uh, that is not local. Even I would say uh, you have to be careful, even if you think it's the same species, but from a different place, you never know what you bring with it. Okay, so even if kelp, or oh, people would say, oh, it's sugar kelp from here, or, uh, sugar kelp from Quebec, or whatever, it's the same species. Well, yeah, but what comes with it? What is growing on the blade of the kelp that you didn't pay attention, but these microscopic organisms were there, you brought them in the biofondy, or I am opposed to that, you will bring them to the biofondy, and what else will you carry with it? So, no, you have, you have to be very careful. And for a very long time, people didn't pay attention about seaweed because people focus on fish and fish disease and shellfish. Oh, yes, yeah, they can also have disease. And now we are, oh, seaweed. And of course, you discover it as you grow more and more. It's when you discover the issues, the disease and everything. But seaweed, if you are not careful, also have their uh, disease. So yeah, we, we have to be careful. So I am against uh, introducing uh, species or strains that are not from where we are. And it's the same thing when, for example, consulting on IMTA, I said to people, I, I don't want to import my, um, my way uh, on my species. Okay, um, in Eastern Canada, we work with uh, sugar kelp, green kelp, uh, salmon, uh, oyster, mussels, sea cucumbers, all the species we have. But I am in your country, you are interested to develop IMTA, well, let's see what you have. And then, so that's why, I, because people... Some people before thought IMTA is uh, uh, salmon, mussel, scalp. And they said, well, no, that's how we started to start somewhere. But that's not the definition of IMTA. So different species, different combination, uh, different uh, scale. It all depends on what you have. And also something very important is what are your people eating? Uh, we have examples. Some people have said, oh, I will go that species. You know, developing a local market is complicated enough. You have to think, oh, yes, but there is that country that like this product. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, no, I, I, I say, what is in your environment? Complementary function, multitrophic complementary function. And then what is your society? Society, what's, What are your people already eating a tradition of that, tradition of this? Or do you think it would be difficult to change some uh, habits and everything, but IMTA, I say IMTA is a concept, is not a formula. And then we, we adapt it to your region, what you have, but no introduction of non-endemic species that could become invasive species. I like the notion of a concept instead of a formula. That's really yeah. an interesting way to think about it. At the same time, <laughs> regulators don't like so much definition because they would much prefer a formula uh, two cage of salmon uh, three uh, raft of uh, mussels and two uh, raft of seaweeds uh, they, they will much prefer formula i said to regulators and scientists i said no because the problem also when you are trapped in one definition one regulation to change a regulation it's it's a lot of work it takes a lot of time as well Yes. So having talked about the current sort of seaweed cultivation landscape, I'm wondering how you think the future of this industry will look with regards to climate change, things like ocean acidification, warming water temperatures, algal blooms. What do you think sort of the future looks like for this industry? Well, one thing that I like to say also about IMTA, you know, we, we use already uh, what is waste for somebody um, is gold for somebody else. And other things that I like to say to people, don't put all your salmon eggs in the same basket. <laughs> and, and IMTA is all about diversification, diversification of species. I mean, we know it in uh, if uh, you play on the stock exchange, if uh, you do agriculture, a stock exchange, if you put all your money in one company and that company go belly up, you lose all your money. In agriculture, uh, if you have too much intensive monoculture and this year is too dry, is too wet, too cold, so whatever, you lose your crop. So IMTA is about diversification of crop. And when we do the calculation with our economists, 
on the long term. So we were always doing calculation on 10 years because that's like salmon is pretty much a two-year thing. So 10 years is five um, cycle of salmon. The, over 10 years, do you make more money with salmon monoculture or with IMTA? And it's all about this diversification, lowering the risk. One crop uh, is maybe not good this year, but is better next year. But if I can play with several crops, overall, I am doing fine. And in agriculture, it's very well known. So it applies also uh, to aquaculture. And I think with uh, climate change, uh, global warming, uh, ocean acidification, yes, we start to see some species that were doing fine, thank you very much, until now, uh, are getting in trouble in some region of the world. So if you have hyper-specialized in one species and all your market is depending on one species, uh, that can be very dangerous. If you can say, well, my species, but I can adapt it and I can also diversify or maybe to change. Um, one thing, for example, uh, and we go back to, to regulation, in the Western world, changing regulations, changing species on a particular site is very complicated, time-consuming compared to, uh, you look at China, uh, uh, on South Korea too, is um, it's very flexible. They, they can evolve. They, okay, oh, this year uh, we were cultivating that, but as a matter of, it's mostly driven by economics. But if they realize that on the same location, uh, the same uh, pond or the same acreage at sea, uh, they can go another species and make uh, more money, they will be it's much more flexible. They can change. No, at the same time, you have to be careful because sometimes there is some swing one way, swings the other way, big pendulum, and that can be also risky. But uh, at the present time, to amend a site uh, in Canada, grow more than one species, it, it's complicated, it's long, and everything. Uh, we, need, uh, we need some flexibility. The last question that I have for you is from an article that I saw, I think UNBSJ released, and it's talking about how seaweeds can potentially be applied to the treatment of Parkinson's disease. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because that is wildly fascinating. Yes, it is. Um, we we have one species, we have an extract, um, and we work, as a matter of fact, you, you are at Dalhousie. We, we work with people at Dalhousie University on this project. We saw that um, the problem of Parkinson's disease, it's one protein that is not folding correctly. Okay. And normally this protein should be what is called an alpha helix. But if it is not uh, with the conformation of an alpha helix, but it's transform into a, what is called a beta pleated sheet. Um, it doesn't work uh, as a transfer of information at the level of the synapse uh, is not that fast. So it slows down, it uh, triggers the trimmering and all these things. So as a matter of fact, we saw that some of the protein uh, that were badly folding, we were able by adding uh, the extract of seaweed, they were able to go back to alpha uh, helixes. Wow. So, uh, yes. So uh, it's a problem of, I don't want to make it complicated with biochemistry and all this, but it's a, it's a problem of protein not folding the right way uh, and losing the efficiency. And so uh, our extract is, um, is reversing that. Now, uh, we wanted to take it further, but came COVID. Uh, you know, clinical trials are very expensive. And then there was no time, no availability for doing clinical trial on something not related to COVID. So uh, we didn't continue on. I, I would like to convince people. That we, we have uh, anecdotal evidence with... with uh, 10, 15 people to whom we gave our uh, extract and we saw some improvement, but, you know, it's anecdotal. People would say, oh, where is the clinical trial? So but we have seen it. Uh, we believe in it. Uh, I would like to go to the next step, but uh, I don't know. It's not easy. <laughs> so now we get to hear your final five following my questions. So thank you so much. Yeah. 
This is a group of five last questions that each guest who joins us here on the Fisheries Pod get asked. So we'll start mm-hmm. off with what typically is what is your favorite fish? Or in this case, if you'd rather, what is your favorite seaweed? <laughs> <laughs> if you want, there is, there is a restaurant in um, in St. Andrews, the Rosemont team, and he does a wonderful salmon wrap. So you combine <laughs> you combine kelp and salmon together. So uh, salmon wrap uh, with uh, kelp. Or, uh, Arctic char is also a wonderful fish. I'll have to make a trip to St. Andrews and get some Sunday kelp gulch and a salmon wrap. That's awesome. The whole experience. <laughs> what is your favorite memory from your career so far? I go back to, and it's not just one memory, but I go back to the, the student we trained during the Canadian IMTN network. Uh, and also we had an annual meeting with them, just seeing them interacting at this annual meeting and then continuing to um, see them. For example, meeting of the Aquaculture Association of Canada was um, last May. Uh, I got the... Lifetime Achievement Award from the Acadian Aquaculture uh, Association at the dinner, gala dinner. There was a little thing. I gave my little spill and uh, got my awards and everything. But I was very interesting to see the number of people in the room associated with the Canadian IMTA network and uh, saying, well, they were students. Now they are professional at the federal level, provincial level, uh, um, <clears throat> consulting world, uh, teaching, uh, university level. And uh, so for me, that was, wow. You know, you know I, I call them my, my new ambassador of IMTA. But for me, yes, they are the next generation because one of these days I will not talk anymore about IMTA. But <laughs> if, uh, if I see this new generation, uh, and I see it in meetings, uh, instead of having to re-explain uh, IMTA, I, I can see a f- former student and saying to those, oh, yeah, yeah, it's IMT. I will explain you what it is. <laughs> so I said, wow, we are progressing. So uh, now that's, uh, I would say, to to have developed this next generation of interdisciplinary IMTA people. That's wonderful. And congratulations on such a wonderful <laughs> award. <laughs> so if you weren't a phycologist, what would your dream job be? <laughs> Um, well the lifetime achievement and I will retire um, next year write books (laughs) Uh, I want to write uh, uh, I want to write the books on IMTA so that will be a serious book Uh, but uh, also I would like to write children books because I think we have to uh, start disseminating ideas at an early age, and uh, and when you see seashore books for children, and you see what it's always the fish and the sea stars. <laughs> and I say, where are the seaweeds? So uh, <laughs> I will took the book upside down, if you want. Uh, and I will say, okay, it's a world of seaweeds. Oh, yeah, there are some fish. Oh, yeah, there are some starfish. Oh, there are the periwinkle. But uh, I will do uh, children books with um, seaweeds as the stars. <laughs> That's awesome. Kelp for kids could be like a whole series. That's great. <laughs> So if money is not an issue and funding and all of that stuff, what is a project that you would love to work on? Well, I would like to to continue this IMTA uh, in Canada because we have a lot of work to have that coming a reality in Canada, but also in other parts of the world. Because as we say, IMTA is a concept, uh, is, is a concept, not a formula. Uh, I would like to see um, IMTA... Uh, in Asia, there is a lot of work being done IMTA in Africa. So that that would be important. And lastly, if there was one point or principle that you would like listeners to take away from hearing you speak today, what would that be? I would say again for the students. Sometimes students say, "Well, there's not, there's no job. It's difficult." And blah, blah, blah. what will happen to me in the future? I would say, don't worry. You will see one day. 
you will be at the right place at the right time. Uh, and that's exactly what happened for me in my career is um, the way different things. And I was uh, finishing my master. How will I do my PhD, so my postdoc? And, uh, you know, you are worried uh, on also after you, you want to settle somewhere because the life of a student, uh, as you know, is wonderful. <laughs> but there is a point where you say, okay, <laughs> we have to be serious and uh, settle my suitcase somewhere. And uh, yeah, you can be uh, worried and nothing. But in my case, no, you have to help yourself to be uh, at the right place at the right time. But uh, like, for example, I, I met a wonderful person who became uh, my... Uh, Po, uh, my postdoc uh, supervisor, uh, Dennis Hanisak, uh, from Arbor Branch Oceanographic Institution in, in Florida at the time. Uh, and I met him in Brazil. And it, I went to a conference. Uh, I was not paid and nobody paid my trip because I was in between two jobs, you know. So I, <laughs> I didn't have a supervisor to pay going to the conference. So I presented my things at the conference uh, in Sao Paulo. And then I took some vacation on my own and did a wonderful tour of Brazil. So I, I enjoyed myself very much. But, I, I, you know, I took the initiative to go to Brazil and I said, I will present. I don't have any funding, but I will go and then do my little trip. During the conference, I, I met this guy, Denis Anisak, and I talked with him and... Uh, and then say, oh, okay. Because, you know, I, I had sent a letter to him, but I'm sure, uh, you know, a student, you send a lot of letters and you don't always get an answer. And, uh, so I had sent a letter to him and he had not answered because he had many requests, I'm sure. But there in Brazil, I did this personal contact. I had a good discussion. He saw my presentation and he said, at the end of the conference, uh, why, why not you uh, resubmit your application and I will take you on? So I had helped myself to be at the right place at the right time. But that's what I will say to people. Don't, don't worry. It will happen. <laughs> as a grad student, that is much appreciated advice. <laughs> <laughs> no, no that's, that's what happened to me. So, but yes, you can be very worrying and say, oh. but if you help yourself by doing the right thing, no, you have to do things, but uh, because it doesn't come freely on you and all these things. But if you do the right things, I have seen it for me, but for other people, things are... So, Dr. Champagne, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure to learn more about your work in phycology and seaweed aquaculture. If people want to learn more about you and what you do, how should they go about doing so? Uh, they can uh, contact me by email. So my email is tchopin at unbsj so T. Chopin at University of New Brunswick, St. John.ca, so unbsj.ca. Uh, I am much better at email uh, than messenger, messages, and everything, and too many things. Email is my thing. Uh, then uh, you can look at uh, our websites called uh, turquoiserevolution.ca, then you can see what we do and all things. And I am on Facebook and I am on uh, LinkedIn. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod or old-fashioned email through feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream us from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or thefisheriespodcast.com. Don't forget that you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some of our fisheries podcast merch available on Teespring. My name is Reed Sutherland. Thank you for listening to the fisheries podcast. And remember, continue to follow your passion. The rest will fall into place. Mm -hmm.